March 23, 2021. It's the Watt for Pedro Show.
Watt from Pedro Show. Happy Tuesday. Start off the show with an excerpt from a live version of Afro Blue with John Coltrane. And, uh, oh, really? Afro Blue? Yeah, yeah. It's live in Seattle, it's a double album. And I think this is a 34 minute song, but this is just four minutes of it. <laughs> and uh, I always start the show with John Coltrane. And then uh, my people, you can tell I'm not man alone. You heard my guests all the way from Pittsburgh. It's Michael Johnson. Welcome aboard, Michael. Hi, thanks so much. Yeah, and we've heard you're at uh, Cressage, 6 April 2013. How, how do you pronounce that? Kresge is not important, though. It's the name of a rich person who paid for a concert hall. Okay, Kresge. <laughs> yeah. Money buys certain privilege. Uh, 6 April 2013 excerpt from Michael Johnson. Michael, let's uh, yes. let's learn about your music through journey, uh, your musical journey. Can, can you give me your earliest musical recollection, please? Hmm. You know, um, if uh, I, I thought about that one two ways, maybe one of them is um, I had a bad accident when I was about four years old. I ran through a glass door. Mm and fell down a flight of stairs and was Ooh. rushed to the hospital because I basically cut my whole left arm open. And um, at that age, you don't have a lot of memories and the ones you have, I guess, are maybe especially vivid, but I was rushed to an emergency room and they sewed up my arm. And I remember sort of very specifically that, uh, that the anesthesia wore off and they told me, well, just look at the wall and try to think about something else. Um, and if music is like the sound that you pay attention to, um, then it was a pretty musical experience because I, I remember sort of experiencing everything, especially intensely, like hearing what must have been the ballast of the fluorescent lights and looking at the paint on the wall, anything to sort of in change my aesthetic experience, I guess. It's not, not exactly maybe music in the sense of uh, remembering going to see a band or something like that. But it, it, it was a very musical experience in as much as it tuned me into to sound. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, where was this? Uh, in in Pittsburgh. Okay. In, um, in our children's hospital. The, 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 the town with all the bridges. The city of bridges, yeah, yes. A lot of bridges. Three big rivers. It's very happening. Beautiful place. Sweaty summers, cold winters. Uh, I, just I, I can give you another musical memory that's a lot um, nicer, though, <laughs> if you prefer a different one. No, no. I mean, you know, just the facts, right? The Who's that asshole on the drag, sure. on Dragnet? Uh, Jack Webb, yeah. Jack Webb, yeah. They wrote a two-hour show and performed it in one hour. Just there the was facts, so much man. dialogue on the show. Yeah, all that dry, deadpan cop talk. They had to hurry to get through the dialogue. Yeah, so you don't have to hurry here, but give me that other memory. Oh, I was just thinking um, more about music in the traditional sense that um, when I was a young teenager, my brother bought the Beatles Abbey Road album, and um, 
despite the Beatles being sort of everywhere, the sec the record wasn't all that familiar to me, just a couple of the hits. But the whole second side, which is sort of that medley, you know, that super um, Paul McCartney-ish thing where he just sort of swings from one little uh, melody to another, carry that weight and golden slumbers and all of that stuff. All of that I knew completely already, even though I'd heard the record for the first time. And I didn't understand how I knew a record that I hadn't heard before. And then I found out from my parents that they used to play it for me when I was a baby in like this preschool that I went to. So I had sort of Osmos. internalized <laughs> most of the second side of Beatles Abbey Road. And it was only sort of reawakened, you know, maybe whatever, 15 years later, which I thought was kind of interesting. Now, this pad in Pittsburgh, did it have musical instruments? Um, not really in the conventional sense, no. It was w one thing that we didn't really have at home, although there were opportunities, I guess. Um, we didn't have conventional musical instruments at home. Um, so people we, were more listeners than players? Um, sure, yeah. I was more... I, I don't, it wasn't for, for lack of loving music, I think, that we didn't have instruments at home. Um, I mean, I, I loved music as a child. I sang at every opportunity I had. And um, I do remember my mother offering me piano lessons. And um, I was very clear that I didn't want them. <laughs> was there a, but there was no piano in the pad, right? There wasn't any piano yeah. at home, no. Okay. But I'm, for some reason, I knew I didn't want piano lessons. Yeah, well, man, a lot of the guests on this show, it's been a traumatic experience. It seems it's mainly about the fucking teacher. Uh, I want to play Pond Field recording excerpt.
the good stuff. Well, I got a Coke Energy, and then they got a Monster right there as well. But we're going to do a quick review. Check this out.
Chairman, it is vital to emphasize this problem of disarmament. And I suggest that this conference should call upon the powers of the world to disarm.
Live from Pedro Show. That chunk of music started off with Michael Johnson. Johnson. Sorry, people. It's got, it got an E, not an O at the near the end there. Uh, Pondfield record excerpt. Then Dustin Wong. Brand new album that's coming out next week. Dustin Wong. It's called uh, Internal Hot Spring. Or like his heritage, uh, I guess you'd call it a onsen. Uh, ribbed and pearly dancing. And then from... Uh, Michael Johnson's town here, Pittsburgh, Mr. Tom, tobacco, brand new album, and a tune called Honey of the Trick, Network Glass, Brother Dora out of Baltimore with WHCR1, Hands Rotten out of Switzerland with E-Bass Drama, Bomas Prendon, Thought Process, they got a brand new collection that just came out, called Confidential, uh, but this ain't from it, SZ, which is uh, SNES. Stanislav's sister, she just made something in this uh, during this situation. Something with uh, this tune here, not aligned with Kwame Nkrumah. And then finally, Michael Johnson with Two Radios, 27 May 2008, excerpt. Okay, so uh, I was going to ask you about school. In, in, uh, were you in the choir, the marching band, or shit like that? Uh, I, I loved to sing and my dad taught me at a very early age how to whistle and I just loved to whistle. Um, I learned, you know, I figured out how to whistle on the in breath as well as the out breath and how to, you know, like move my tongue around in my mouth to do trills and stuff like that. Um, I just loved that to pieces, but no, I wasn't in the marching and I, um, I had another opportunity for lessons, though, in the fourth grade, I guess. Um, and um, I decided to give that one a go for some reason. And um, I think like a lot of you're saying, a lot of other people, um, I was told that I, I'm a very tall person, six, four or so, and I forget how tall. And um, like they told me I was going to play trombone. Ah, bass clef. Yeah, well, a long arm person's instrument is probably what they thought when they looked at me. <laughs> um, Big mouthpiece. And I, I, I hated it. Uh, I didn't like the teacher. I didn't like, I didn't understand why I, I loved music, but I didn't understand why I had to sit in front of a piece of paper and try to do the thing that was in front of me. Because I, most of what I did as a kid sort of creatively was making pictures and things, drawing, painting, that kind of thing. And they, they never really told you what to do. You know, you just sort of got to be sat in front of all these great materials and you got to fool around. But this music education thing was like um, doing somebody else's work. Like there were all these instructions and I, I really hated it. And I later found out that our teacher was a, uh, uh, was abusive to the kids. There was an article about him in the paper that he, uh, he hit everybody and called them names and he never did that to me, but it, it helped me maybe understand why I didn't like it. That there was something about that guy that that was no good. Yeah, it sounds like a personality disorder rather than, but also it seems like you're getting at the at 
the root of that kind of institution, follow instructions, right? Whereas versus the other kind of expression where let your freak flag fly. Yeah, there was no room for, they called it playing music, but it didn't feel like, you know, playing, like it wasn't fun. And maybe it would have been fun if I'd really taken to the tunes that we were going to play and there'd be this sort of fun social aspect to it. But in terms of this, like, kind of very open-ended creative experience, it, it wasn't that for me at all. And I think that was a, it was, I think it was a different way of approaching education than in my experience growing up, visual arts was a lot more open, but musical teaching was really just about getting you to, to reproduce other people's ideas. Yeah. Uh, and, and it just seemed hard for me. It was just way too hard. I could see a point to the, that, though, like teaching somebody the alphabet so they can learn how to write a novel later and not exactly. Sure. Uh, so maybe, you know, rudiments and skills like that for you to, uh, you know, the, the the art of a pocket knife isn't really the knife. It's what's going to be carved with it. So maybe. I'm, I'm cutting them yeah. a lot of slack, Michael. Believe me, I'm, I'm on your side. Oh no, for, can, can, can for I ask sure. You, no, I, I see the point in all of it. Can, can I ask you the first record you bought with your own money? Uh, you know, I think it. I think it was um, a flexi disc inside a Mad magazine. Oh yeah. Um, my brother and I were really into Mad Magazine for some reason. I guess we loved the kind of... Me and Dee Boone, too. We used to do cassette recordings where we would reenact like a radio show, those fucking... Because they would do parodies of movies and... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, I think we just liked the irreverence of it or something. But it was this flexi-disc, and there was this ridiculous song called um, Great Big Beautiful Wonderful Incredible Super Spectacular Day. And what was <laughs> neat about it... Not just that it was a flexi disc, which was kind of a cool idea, but also that it was multi groove, so that every time you played it, theoretically, it would, um, like the the groove would would they would reach a fork in the road, and then it would either go left or right, and the song would change. Yeah. So there were multiple sort of um, choose your adventure type uh, options as the record progressed. There's a Monty Python um, record that actually has three sides. It depends how you put the stylus <laughs> on one of the sides. Yeah, matching tie and handkerchief or yeah, something with Jack the fucking uh, cheese shop. I love that idea. I think it's the cheese yeah. shop or something. Yeah, it's a master in hell, but the guys who can do it, it's fucking happening. Uh, what about the first gig you yep. went and saw? Oh, um, yeah. You know, I was, I was like the younger kid, so... I kind of my brother did everything before me. Um, and, you know, there were school concerts and stuff like that for sure. But I think the first kind of leaving the house for something that was sort of adult and special was that my my parents got us tickets for just my brother and I to go see that um, that mime group, Mummenschanz. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes, I do remember that. The, they were a Swiss trio for most of their existence, and they would do those crazy things with, like, being inside a giant corrugated tube and toss a big <laughs> fuzzy ball back and forth. And the program was just totally nuts. We were in this, like, 
18th century concert hall, you know, with that like Baroque uh, sort of encrusted ornamentation all over it. And then the program was just this hand-drawn series of images of like, it was a ball and it was a roll of toilet paper and um, some other squiggly little lines. And that was telling us what all the different acts were. But it was a very, despite the fact that they were mimes, it was a really intense audio experience because it was totally dead quiet in this huge space. And you just heard them sort of scooting around on the stage and sweating. It was really impressive. For sure, a a different perspective on on a musical thing. <laughs> Michael, what about well, later after on, school? I went to see the Who, if that, um, on their first for- farewell tour, but that was much later. I was probably in high school at that point. Well, let's talk about like junior high, high school, after school. Uh, I'm not talking yeah. about uh, when you graduated. I mean, in the afternoon, did you do the thing like a uh, uh, garage band, basement band, bedroom band? You, you know, I, I didn't really. I think I was probably too introverted. I, I was okay. really into it was maybe too social for me. I don't I don't know. But what I did have, which I absolutely fell in love with, and I would probably say was my first uh, my first instrument was a um, a Hitachi cassette recorder. Um, because I would record stuff with it off of the radio and um, just edit stuff with the pause button. Sure. And um, the, the part that got really interesting to me was not just that I could sort of recontextual, like I would just record the announcers reading the advertisements or weather reports or whatever. And then I would pause and they would, you know, their sentences would change because of what I chose to include or exclude. But what the really revelatory thing for me was that depending on how I pushed the pause button down, the tape, the tape would momentarily speed up while it was stopping. Yeah. And so the the voice on playback would sort of burp and hiccup. Yeah. And I had sort of I was able to transform these voices into these like <laughs> I know kind of things just by goofing around with that pause button. And I was just I felt like I had discovered something magical i didn't understand it you know when i went and asked my dad how did that work and um it was uh it was a, a beautiful <laughs> a beautiful thing for me because it was it was just in there you know what i mean it was like this uh, secret for me how, you, yeah. knew, you hadn't been aware of uh, spike jones at that point yeah no, probably not. I was probably in like fourth or fifth grade when oh, I was okay, okay. doing because this. Th- I his, I, his music sounds like that. Kind of... Oh, it really does. I absolutely love the Spike Jones stuff. That. Uh, and then I, if you I mix in uh, the Moomin thing, like uh, music for cartoons, right? Because these yeah. guys are playing to the cartoon. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. But it was so abstract too. I mean, it was like, Absolutely. what did it refer? What did it refer to? You know what I mean? It was just there was something sort of beautiful about this. Um, the fact that it didn't represent anything particular. It was just kind of movement and and life. It was like dance without the the obvious reference to the body. I liked that a lot. <laughs> it totally. I mean, <laughs> it's 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 sound. 
I mean, when you think about yeah. music, okay, you can bring in some rhythm and syncopation, but it is about sound, or Mr. Cage would probably argue the lack of sound also. I remember there was a slit song where the lady, God, we lost her, Ari, right? She goes, silence is a rhythm mm -hmm. too. Yeah, silence. It's Absolutely, a, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. So, so at a young age, music was kind of conceptual for you. Well, yeah, you, you know, I... I mean, obviously, I liked a lot of, for, I don't know what you call it, conventional music, straight music. I, I liked all of those things. I loved the, the, the rhythm and the energy, and I loved a tune. God, I loved a tune. Yeah. Um, but I was also really interested in sound for sounds, like just loving sounds. Like the other sort of first record thought was. Um, that I remember bugging my parents to get the Star Wars soundtrack album because I wanted, I, we had watched the Star Wars movie when it came out in 76, and I thought a soundtrack album was all the sound of the movie. And <laughs> when we got the soundtrack album, it was just the John Williams theme, yeah. piles of violins. <laughs> and I was like, where's R2-D2? Yeah. Where... Uh, <laughs> Where are the Ewoks, or, or I guess Ewoks were in a later movie, but, you know, those were the sounds I wanted from that movie, and none of it was there. They, and I thought, well, that's what, it, that's what I would want if I were buying a soundtrack album, is I'd want to hear all those cool right. sounds. So you, you felt like you got gypped. Look, we're at the end of the first hour, March 23, yeah. 2021, Dishon Wap Pedro Show special guest, Michael Johnson. Hold tight for hour two. March 23, 2021. It's the second hour of the Watford Pedro Show.
live in a town of drunkards and sailors and ne'er-do-wells. Safe as houses. What could go wrong? We sold off the mythic plane So we're left with our party games Televised address or a flag unfurled. Trying to get to the bottom of things.
These are... Are you taking a picture of me or the volcano? From Peter's show, we're discussing incredible cultural trips here, people off air. But he ain't got enough time, so I'm going to get right to the music <laughs> part. Untitled 1972 by David Tudor, to transcription 2016 by Michael Johnson. Uh, started off Ben Salter from Tasmania with the uh, Mythic Plane, then uh, Tommy Dahill. Uh, people have been fucking pronouncing his name wrong. It ain't Dahill, it's Dahill. You know, I, do, I just, mm. I don't know, not only destroy the other people's languages, I destroy their fucking family names, too. So I'm very, very sorry. I'm an asshole. And that, and uh, he's up in Alaska. And this is, this is uh, Gaelic, you know, so I'm going to fuck that. So, uh, but uh, Tom Neal, Tom Neal, <laughs> uh, Jacob Rose's swag after that with chimes. And finally, Michael Johnson with Japanese Landscape, 1956. So... This idea, you know, like one of the first pieces I played on the show here was something called field yeah. recording. So you got into yeah. this idea of the field recorder. Your tape recorder became your friend. It Well, yeah, that's funny, though, because um, despite sort of falling in love with the cool thing that the tape recorder did at a young age, um, I really never warmed up to uh, recording as like a, it, it was not my axe in music. Um, I got, like, if you notice, all of the tracks that I gave you were just excerpts of live recordings. I, I really don't make recordings much, and I don't, I don't edit tape at all, uh, well, or any recording at all. Um, I got into the sounds of electronics, um, but n not so much in to the sort of studio side. More the performance side. The way a lot of people, the way a lot of people do electronic music is about making recordings and manipulating them and becoming um, obsessed with the construction of a piece within editing. And I, I never really had. I liked a lot of that stuff that I heard, but I I couldn't do it. I never really warmed up to it. I wanted. An experience that was live and that was surprising to me, and I, it came to realize after quite a while that I didn't really have um, ideas. Uh, like the, the way a composer has ideas, I was an observer. I, I like to make a situation where interesting things happened, and I liked to explore, but um, I didn't construct things. Okay, well, uh, the guy uh, cat I had on yesterday, right out of Maine. 
Scott, he, yeah. he he was the same he was saying the same thing. He prefers performing over recording. Yeah. Yeah, I know Scott a bit. Um uh yeah, no, that's very true of of me too. I I am relatively indifferent to well, that's the wrong wrong way of putting it. It's just it wasn't my thing. Um I, I put a field recording in there because um it reminds me of a lot of the work I do that isn't field recording okay. <laughs> uh, well because I, a lot of what i do uh has to has to do with the relationship to the sounds of nature yeah at least I, I think about it that way and so i threw in a field recording to kind of um artificially create that parallel i guess yeah well believe it or not i think you might be part of nature i certainly <laughs> hope so It'd be, uh, I don't know what would happen to me if I weren't. <laughs> so you're, you're kind of a... Where are we going to, how are we going to throw him away, is what they will say. <laughs> well, you're just the logical extension of all his permutations, right? Okay. <laughs> I want to play Japanese Landscape 1961. You gave me several of these at different years. They're insanely short. I can tell yeah. you about them if you like, after or before. Let's play it, because uh, we're going to play three of oh, them sure. here, right? Because we already played awesome. 1956. For now we're going to play 1961, 1973, and 1978.
Esquiva tus ojos planos, la risa del perro al salir, los restos de anoche dirigen mi paso, sombras me llaman en
Fuck for Pedro show. Started that chunk of music off of Japanese landscape, 1961, Michael Johnson. Then Gareth Sager with Miniature Tan. He calls it a quartet, but it's just him and his sax. Uh, Gareth, pop group guy. Incredible musician. Mm. Mike Cooper after that, Complicated Sky. Then Japanese Landscape, 1973, Michael Johnson. Psychic Dynamite. I think they're from Strong Beach across the harbor here. A Baron. And Don the Tiger. After that with uh, Soportales de la Chinata. Uh, Don the Tiger. And then finally, Michael Johnson, The Japanese Landscape, 1978. Please enlighten us to these landscapes from Japan, Michael. Oh, sure. Well, uh, despite the fact that I keep telling you I uh, recording isn't my primary uh, tool, um, these Japanese landscapes were um, originally, they're the residue of a series of um, videos that I made. I was primarily a filmmaker for a lot of my youth. And um, I made this series of videos called Japanese landscapes that were uh, the Japanese monster movies, the classics, the Godzillas, the Mothras, the Rodans. And I edited them to take out every single frame of the movie that um, had people in it or um, the environments associated with people. So like scenes of cities and stuff like that. Um, so after taking out all the human elements in the, in the Japanese monster movies, I was left with movies that were about a minute long, <laughs> about two minutes long. Um, so it's in some cases, just single frames between where people are. Um, and what we're hearing, the stuff that I sent, you are just the audio portions of those. So Japanese landscape 1956 is Rodan. Um, uh, you can hear voices. You, you will protest and say you, you can hear voices in there, but that's because I made the decision to edit based on the picture, not on the sound. Right, right. Um, so you hear it in the first one, they're saying, are you taking a picture of me or of the volcano or something like that? Um, and what's neat is that you kind of get this sense of the environment of the Japanese monster movie, you know, the kind of um, the drama that's created uh, without uh, without the content, or at least that was a part of my intention. Yeah, I mean, basically, like that, Japan is going to get like tore up again. Right? <laughs> Every time yeah. the Tokyo Tower is going to get kicked over and. <laughs> Everything stepped yeah. on and squished and ruined. <laughs> and I did like 11 or 12 of these. Um, these four just had ones that where the soundtracks were a little more interesting. So 1961 is Mothra. Uh, the two from the 70s, I think, are maybe one of the Ghidra movies. I, I forget. I, I'm not an expert on these, but I, I always liked the, the color and the atmosphere of them. Um, I just didn't want the dialogue. I guess. Or the, uh, yeah, the men in the rubber suits. <laughs> I also like the idea of them becoming landscapes, you know, because yeah, landscape sure. is so pastoral, but Japanese monster movies are usually watched for the mayhem. Totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, and maybe it was some kind of therapy. Yeah. I watched them a lot <laughs> when I was a kid, too. I mean, but now you mentioned film. So when you were making these films yeah. as a younger man, were you also 
producing the music that went along with the films? Well, it's it's funny because I came to I came back to um, doing just sound after making I basically was primarily a filmmaker until my late 30s or so. And then because of the filmmaking I was doing was very experimental and very kind of involved in process. Like I learned a lot about chemistry and optics and I used to make movies through microscopes and things like that. Um, When I started to move away from film and into sound, my sound world was very sort of specific and based in materials as well. So I started learning how to build electronics. I was making microphones. Um, and so there was a kind of a natural transition. Um, yeah, one, one uh, informed the other. The ideas came from the materials and not really from somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. Really interesting. Look, we're at the end of the second hour, March 23, 2021. Dishwap Peter Show special guest, Michael Johnson. Hold tight for our three. I think it's paid. <laughs> March 23. <laughs> like in my third opera, I said the lessons never lessen, right? <laughs> Life is for learning. Life is for paying back the debt. March 23, 2021. It's the third hour of the Watt for Pedro Show.
Watch for Pedro show. We start off the third hour. Michael Johnson uh, with something live uh, at Babyland, 11 September 2016 excerpt. And I had assumed it was the Babyland here, but it wasn't. It's the one in Pittsburgh. So be careful about that A word, people. It's fucked up. Don't do it. Check it out. Ask the dude. <laughs> and uh, after that, Carnival Jones, the Mandarin Mystic. That's got Crane involved. Uh, deep in the Woods, 66 from Dublin, with digging a hoe to keep precious things in. Aruba Avua, after that. Victor, he was on last week. Uh, Portugal. As Pesosas Avocados. And then finally, Michael Johnson with Folk Tell Harmonium Examples. Mm. Yeah, in likeness. Oh, uh, well, I think I, I don't know what we talked about during the break between the recorded bits, but I, uh, I got very involved in building electronic instruments after I had fooled around with uh, instruments that other people had made, commercial stuff. And that became very important to me, the idea of making your own instruments, making your own tools. Um, so most of the work in the uh, that I sent you was done with uh, entirely with homemade instruments um, and a whole lot of them. But the folk tell harmonium was this weird project I did for a, a gallery show in here in Pittsburgh called uh, After Sound, which was a kind of a sound art show. And I was uh, one of the invited uh, people in that show. And the tell harmonium was the first synthesizer, arguably from eight. 1997 in an era before amplifiers and loudspeakers um, and because it was kind of pre-technology it weighed um, about 120 tons <laughs> and not joking it took a bunch of train cars to move and was installed in a basement in Manhattan and you had to subscribe to it over the telephone system in order to get it into your house um, but my sort of ridiculous idea was that if I were in prison or if I just had like my room of junk electronics at home, could I make a telharmonium in the year, uh, whatever it was, 2016 or 2017? Because the technology changed so much, you could make a telharmonium out of like literal garbage. So that was my sort of technical, um, uh, what's the word, challenge. Make a telharmonium uh, for zero dollars. And so I made this instrument that used the same principles of the telharmonium, which is um, mag magnetic induction. It's basically the same principle that the Hammond organ works on. You have these spinning cogs and tone, essentially magnetic pickups wheels. that listen to them. Yeah, I think they call them yeah. tone wheels, right? Tone wheels, exactly, yeah. Um, and so I made tone wheels out of junk I had around, which was literally pieces of the kitchen sink. Um, and springs and spools of thread, um, cheese graters, all kinds of things. So the folk telharmonium was called the folk telharmonium because it was like a folk instrument, you know, made by people at home for their own needs. Um, and it was kind of, on some level, sort of showing how the, the technology is condensed over all of these years. Sure. Um, you know, like the whole history of the technology of electronic music instruments in some ways is in your pocket. Wow. Um, 
but, but yeah, it, so it makes these sort of weird warbling drones, and those were just some examples from it. It was an instrument that was set up in the gallery for visitors to play with, so it's not like so many other things I've sent you. It's not really a piece per se. It's really just a kind of a sampling of some sounds that it makes. Okay, okay. And, and yeah. speaking of magnetic wheel spinning, I want to play magnetic rubbing yeah. sample. Awesome.
soft and safe
Cause all of it dangerous territory All of it dangerous territory
Scott for Pedro Show. Last music for this edition. Michael Johnson with Magnetic Rub and Sample. Remember, people, these aren't pieces. These are just excerpts <laughs> and samples. <laughs> Don't listen too carefully. It's not a real thing. <laughs> Don't be waiting for the money shot. Okay. Try to try to get distracted. Right. Oh, no, after that with the Untitled, and that's an excerpt from live, and, but it might be a tune. i got to ask Tom Smith. He's uh, on oh, no. Yeah, without in German, right? Michael Johnson after that with uh, Minuet Chrysler. But spelled trippy. Fritz Chrysler. Yeah. Uh, Yucca from Japan. They probably say Yucca. I like the, the Mexican guys do too. At least we, we fuck it up. Okay. With Monet. You're not Monet. Yeah, I know. I don't say Fry Joes or fucking Jalapenos. <laughs> Right. Is that how you say that? <laughs> no, you would think <laughs> my town being called Pedro, right? Fuck. Anyway, uh, untitled jamming in Miami, 2016, part two. This is Ig and Thirst. Ig's little pad and little uh, uh, Haiti, just jamming. Sean Lennon after that with montage. I think it was this was from uh, something he gave me that was stuff for a movie. And then finally, Michael Johnson with. Elegé Asine. Did I say that? Uh -huh. It's French, so I probably ruined that language, too. Uh, those those two really short ones are... Um, the, the minuet by Chrysler is Fritz Chrysler, who was a big deal violinist. Right. And the the Massenet is a very... is a is a is an elegy, like some sappy... Uh, those are very old, um, like pre-electric, um, uh, kind of sentimental pieces. And I, I was just using them in this film soundtrack work where I would just play really old recordings backwards to sort of get the experience of the melodies. So they're extremely, if you hear those, heard those forward, you'd say, oh yeah, I've heard that a thousand times. But I was just trying to do the very least amount of manipulation, which is to just hear a melody backwards, but because they are on instruments like violins and accordions, you don't really hear the backwardsness very much because yeah. um, because they sound relatively the same forwards and backwards because yeah. the attack and the decay are pretty similar. Yeah, legato. It's kind of all, yeah. all gooey and connected. <laughs> not not pointy. Exactly, yeah, yeah. It's nice and smeary. Right, smeary. Yeah. So, so right now, Michael, what are you doing? Yeah. Are, are you, since you don't like recording and you don't like composing, <laughs> you like improvising and performing. Well, how are you uh, dealing with this situation musically? Uh, well, you know, I earn my living designing electronic music circuits for a synthesizer company. So I, I design electronic music equipment for a living. So that keeps me busy. And in some ways, it's sort of informed by my, my own creative work. Um, uh, because a lot of the work I do is like, if I'm not playing, I'm probably working on instruments or doing research. And that to me is all kind of a part of the same thing. Um, but, uh, right now what I'm doing is I'm, uh, bowing, uh, styrofoam. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's like that, that, that very dense uh, that very dense um, insulation sure. styrofoam. Yeah. Because um, I, I, I play musical saw as well. I didn't send you any musical saw, but 
I, I got there's a lot of sound in a piece of styrofoam that isn't just the one that makes everybody leave the room. Uh, there's a lot of very kind of uh, vocal stuff. Um, you know, uh, the, the timbres are kind of incredible because it's a, uh, it's a very tunable filter. The, the styrofoam is you, you rub your fingers all over it and it's like a, like a percussion instrument or like the musical glasses or something like that. Sure, it's really, sure. it's kind of, yeah. You know the essence of sound. The essence of sound is just so interesting, and I, I love you being a pioneer and exploring all this. It's been a big honor to have you on the show, Michael. I hope you keep on keeping on, please. I hope you do too, and I hope you get a rest from doing all these radio shows. <laughs> no rest for the wicked, people. It's been March twenty three, twenty twenty one. Keep your white pedos. You keep your powder dry.